Bookstore Explorer is brought to you in part by the Bookshop Bungalow at Plot Twist Books. Have you ever wanted to spend the night in a bookstore? With the Bookshop Bungalow, now you can. Located just minutes from Charleston, West Virginia, the Bookshop Bungalow is a book lover's retreat, a private room inside an actual working bookshop. Each stay comes with a used book credit, employee pricing on new books and gifts, and an honorary staff pick of your choice added to our inventory. Learn more and book your stay now at PlotTwistBooks.com. Welcome to Bookstore Explorer, the show where we go behind the shelves with booksellers to celebrate the magic of independent bookstores. I'm author and bookseller Matt Browning. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that occasionally I have on a writer or other bookish folks to talk about their projects and about their experiences with bookshops. Well, this week, I'm very excited to welcome Stan Zimmerman to the show. Stan has written for and worked on some of my favorite shows, among them The Gilmore Girls, Roseanne, Wanda at Large, Fame, Rita Rocks, and of course, my personal favorite, The Golden Girls. His film credits include writing the Brady Bunch movies in the 90s, uh, the recent Lifetime film, Ladies of the 80s, A Diva's Christmas, which came out this past holiday season. He's also very busy these days writing and directing for stage, and his new memoir, The Girls from Golden to Gilmore, is available today wherever books are sold. Now, forewarning listeners, we do get to books and bookstores eventually in our conversation, but I do fanboy out a bit over Stan's work, so so indulge me <laughs> and come along as we go bookstore exploring. Hi, Stan. It's good to see you. It's been a minute. Nice, nice to see you again. How you been? Crazed as usual, juggling all my crazy projects. Well, uh, you're extraordinarily busy. Yeah, it's uh, thanks to espresso and sugar-free Red Bull. So <laughs> if Red Bull wants to contact me, I think I'd be a very good um, spokesperson, spokesperson slash spokesmodel. Um, I'm actually currently in Palm Springs where I'm directing Paul Rudnick's play, The New Century. Okay. And it plays um, February 8th through the 18th. And uh, it's a really smart, funny, sexy. uh, There is a little male uh, full frontal nudity just for fun. And uh, as what often happens in theater. But I'm having a ball down here and loving Palm Springs. There is a great bookstore there, and its name has completely flown out of my head. I apologize if they're listening. Well, get it to me so I can uh, go over and drop off some books. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of books, congratulations. It is release day. Your brand new book is out in the world, The Girls from Golden to Gilmore. So tell me about the book. Finally. I've been talking about it for <laughs> so long. Somebody reminded me uh, I did some podcast eight years ago, and mm-hmm. I had mentioned the title, so probably came into my head before then. Um, and then I either did a brilliant move or a huge mistake, but I mentioned it at the Gilmore Girls Fan Fest uh, about eight years ago, and they were my accountability coaches. And every year I'd go back and i go, well, where is it? Come on, get to it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. And then, you know, it was really hard to find a publisher. And luckily, I found Indigo River Publishing, and they're connected with Simon & Schuster, and they've been fantastic. And then this little thing called COVID happened. And, um, you know, I just decided to buckle down and use that time to mm-hmm. really finish the book. 
And I found a space in my home that I didn't normally use. It's called a dining room table. And um, that shows I don't have dinner parties. And I don't really know how to cook. I have two or three meals I make for myself. I'm not sure I would make anybody else suffer through them. I turned my dining room into a library. So So there, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. (laughs) I found my little spot. I had my espresso in the morning and I just took my computer there because I do like to work in bed, which I know you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to sleep Mm -hmm. with your computer next to you. But, um, you know, when you ain't got nobody else, that's the next warmest thing. (laughs) And um, I found it really helped because I had a place to go to and I could just concentrate and focus and get a lot of work done each day. And, um, you know, banged out a rough draft. And then we went, you know, through rewrites and tightened things up and eliminated a few little sections that I, I felt weren't quite necessary. And uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll tell you what, what those were. Um, but uh, I had a great time. and I can't wait for it to be out into the world, you know, it's starting to get reviewed a bit. And that was just kind of shocking. You know, I, I'm kind of used to those reviews, you know, putting out a play, you spend all this time, and then you present it kind of like a pie and people either say, I want more pie or yuck. And uh, so it's it's really been mostly positive. Um, some people have commented, oh, it's a lot of name dropping. But those are the people I work with. Yeah. So well, who am I supposed to name or not name? Um, um, but it's also, it also gets very personal and it has nothing to do with the actors that I've worked with, um, but about the people in my life, uh, most specifically my mother and how she was my biggest cheerleader. And I did not know the book was going to end on her, but that's how life takes it. Takes you. You you did get quite personal. And, and as somebody who grew up glued to my television, um, what you called name dropping did not bother me at all. I loved every second of it. Um, I had the well, pleasure. Some people of, wanted more of that. I mean, and seriously. Then other, and then other people were like, no, we want to know more about his personal life. I'm like, really? You care about that? Um, so, but mostly people are, are uh, they got the tone that I was going for, that I was like, we were going out for coffee, or if you're lucky, a martini or a glass of rose, and just, you know, just a very naturalistic uh, sound to it. And uh, very funny, but also, I think like my writing, very heartfelt as well. And honest about the struggles in a career. And people are finding, um, seeing the way I coped with different adversities in a career and the ups and downs and taking from it how they can um, use those in their own life in any job, uh, how to be a boss in any job, and also dealing with grief just in anyone's life. I want to, I mean, we could talk all day about your, your long and successful career, but I want to hit a couple of the high points. Let's start with the Golden Girls. We kind of have to. Obviously. <laughs> how did you get, you how did you get your to. job writing for the Golden Girls? Um, we had a really good spec script, <clears throat> which was a Cheers episode. And, uh, it was kind of at the beginning of Cheers. So not a lot of people had written. Uh, an episode for that. We had gone to a free taping because we had no money. We had nothing else to do but go to tapings. And we were very ambitious young writers. And we knew that by going to these tapings, we would learn a lot and watch. 
Uh, we had no idea what a taping of a TV show was. So we just went to all of them. And that was a show we just like, we have to write an episode. We had done a couple other spec scripts and spec scripts are um, you take a sh- an existing TV series and you write your own episode for it, which are really hard to do because you're not uh, in on the show on a staff position. So you have no idea where they're going with the shows, but that's a whole other arc besides just writing original material is being able to capture the sound of different characters and the way they tell stories in a different series. But I think we had a particularly good ear for that. And uh, that cheer spec was just the one that just like blew open the doors. And then it went from nobody calling us back to becoming the flavor of the month. And all these agents suddenly started taking us out for lunches and dinners and drinks and offering us, you know, we'll take you to Hef's mansion, not knowing that that wasn't really an interest of mine. But uh, I did end up going there. Uh, and that's in the book, uh, when my friend Sandra Bernhardt had, uh, she was on the cover and inside and she had a big party there and all the lesbians jumped into the grotto and, um, and he also has like animals everywhere. He has like a zoo hmm. and I stole some stationery because it said Hugh Hefner's house on it. So you still have it. Of course I do. <laughs> I have a lot of stationery oddly cause nobody uses it, but I have mm-hmm. all the stationery. I have some from the original Roseanne show. So when you get on staff, they would give you, you know, little notepads with the uh, logo on it. Mm-hmm. So I unfortunately I don't have any Golden Girls. I have a lot on the overall deals that we had, like Paramount and 20th Century Fox. Um, but I have Roseanne. I must have some others, some little Gilmore things I think I have. You know, speaking That's- of spec scripts, we'll get to bookstores in a minute, listeners, but... <laughs> Is it still the same way it was? Because even sitcoms these days are so serialized. Is it is spec script still the way it's done? Um, unfortunately, no. Now it's mostly they want original material, which is the exact opposite when I started. They did not want to read anything original. And then when we started moving up the ladder and having our own pilots and shows and, and looking for new writers, I always said, give us one of each. Because I, I think both... Uh, talents are important to bring to a staff. You want people that have an original sound, but if they can't duplicate your sound, they're not useful on a staff and they won't last. And you see shows like um, Gilmore Girls, Amy went through many, 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 many writers. They couldn't capture what was in her head. And uh, that's how we ended up on it because she knew we could do that and she wanted friends around after years of fighting with the networks and um, just not finding, you know, the cohesive group that she wanted in the writer's room. Um, But yeah, they're still writing scripts during COVID. I started teaching uh, sitcom writing classes online and what started as really four or five people, then I made the mistake of posting about it. And then people from all over the world started saying, I want to join so at one point, I was teaching four classes a week, and there were eight to 10 people in each class. So that's a lot of reading, and my life just became that. Yeah. But it was very gratifying because during that time, people were, you know, it was COVID and George Floyd. It was really an intense period for people to be stuck at home. And uh, the beautiful thing was some people had these sitcom ideas 
that they've had in their head for over 40 years, one woman I know, and she got to finish a script during COVID. Mm-hmm. So I had done it in three sections, uh, pitching with a month off, then uh, outlining month off, and then you write uh, the cold open in the first scene, not knowing that people wanted to then do act two and act three. And so it could be, you know, many months that we were all together and we had this great group. And at the end of it, we read everybody's first act. We had a mock table reads online. And I created this really big, vast community of actors and writers. And uh, I'm really glad I did it. It was exhausting and exhilarating all at the same time. You know, when I was in college, I had to take a screenwriting course to fulfill my degree requirements. And I was very intimidated by it. I put it off to my very last semester. And when I finally took it, it was the best class I took. We did the same kind of thing. We had to each week write a certain number of pages and then read them as a class. You want to cast people. It was it was fascinating to me. I had taken some classes here. There's a famous guy, Robert McKee, that teaches story structure. And when I took it, it was because I wanted to get a transition from uh, TV to film. Mm-hmm. And that idea of like, how do you go from 30 pages to a whole movie? I just had no idea. And the class, I just I don't like school, but uh, I did get a lot from him as far as structuring in three acts. And it was really funny because at that time, everybody was taking the classes, young writers, executives, actors. It was just the thing to do. Um, but I, And people over the years had always asked, teach a writing class. And I thought, I don't want to just be a talk in some, you know, hotel banquet room and you leave with nothing. I want to people to come away with something. And then I kind of modeled it after the Groundlings Improv that there's sections and you graduate to each section. And some people dropped out after uh, pitching. They just, they couldn't do it. And uh, outlining is completely different than pitching. And writing a script is completely different than outlining. Some people, at least they had a full outline of their script at the end of that period. And they could go off and do whatever they wanted. Most people wanted to stay and and start writing. And then it became a mock writer's room online. So you really got that experience. Like, I wish I had had that. I didn't know. When I went into a writer's room on our first job, we literally thought that we would be making coffee for people. We thought we were going to be assistants or secretaries. We didn't realize, no, you're sitting here at the table with the other writers. And that first day, they said, break for lunch, come back and pitch up your episode you're going to write. And we're like, wait, what? I don't think we ate any food. We were probably in the bathroom uh, almost throwing up. But we This came was back the Golden and, Girls? No, this was a, a show called Just Our Luck. It was our very first show. And um, we came back and we didn't know what we were doing. We pitched it and everyone's laughing. And we're like, I think we, you know, we... We might be good at this. We, we might be good at it. And we wrote it, and it was the first one they filmed, and then they kept giving us another script and another script. Uh, so that was another, you know, craft to be able to uh, knock out a first draft that's good enough that can then, what they call, be brought to the table, meaning everybody jumps in and pitches jokes. And, you know, writing first draft is very, very important. Was it tough for you, you know, in 1985, being, I assume, fairly young and writing for people like B. Arthur and Betty White? Um, it wasn't 
I didn't, you know, it's funny. I didn't think of that. Um, when we were writing it, it wasn't the age thing because early on when I started acting at age seven, one of my first acting teachers said, go out to a mall and just watch people and imagine what they're saying and what they're thinking. So I, and then I think being gay, always being an outsider, watching people, I was uh, a good observer and very sensitive about what other people were feeling. Any people, all ages. I just, I just somehow my heart was always for other people. So I, writing for older ladies, it was like, okay, it just seemed natural. It wasn't until years later that I had heard a story that B. Arthur came in and looked at the writers and it had to have been me and Jim because we looked like we were probably 16 or 17. And she was like, how, who are these people? They took, gonna write for us she was very mad mm-hmm. and then she I've heard that down, story too <laughs> yeah but i didn't know that at the time i thank mm-hmm. god i didn't know it at the time i probably wouldn't have been able to get out of my car in the parking lot at work um and then she sat down and they read the script out loud and she's like we're good <laughs> you know she saw week after week this group and us uh you know be able to write sensitively years later we were doing a benefit for um, uh, the Celebration Theater, which is a uh, LGBTQ plus theater company in LA. And the producers of that um, also were producing Hot in Cleveland. And I happened to be shadowing the director that week. His name is Todd Milliner, Sean Hayes' producing partner. And he said, we're going to do a benefit and we want the girls from Hot in Cleveland to read a Golden Girls script can you recommend any scripts? And I looked at him, I said, Todd, you're doing one of mine. Like, I'm not going (laughs) to recommend somebody else's. Uh, He says, well, can you send me, you know, the PDF of it? I go, Todd, they were typewritten on paper. (laughs) I will go home. I will bring in the original copy. You will treat it like gold and you'll make a, you know, Xerox copy, whatever it's called. Um, And then you can, someone can retype it and put it into um, you know, script format. And uh, so that's how the cast of Hot in Cleveland, including Betty White, read our Rose's mother slash Blanche and the Younger Man. And um, Betty was fantastic not episode, by the way. Thank you. We were nominated for Writers Guild Award for it. And uh, um, for some reason, Betty would not read Rose. Was it a you been there, like done she, that kind of thing? You know who she wanted to read? Yes. Well, I know because I read the book. But <laughs> oh, okay, uh, she wanted to read B. Arthur. How'd she do? She distant. She, of course, she was good. Um, I would like to have seen her, Sophia. But um, yeah, she kind of uh, was in the Sophia role, so to speak. Yeah, on uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and I remember I went early. They did just a practice table read, and I stood to the side, and I just. It just hit me hard. Like, who was that kid that wrote that? And why was he writing about older women in that way? And that what gave me that insight into their feelings and everything? It was for such a young person. It was shockingly uh, truthful and uh, funny. And uh, I was just, it was like listening to another person's writing. 
And I did not want that night to end. It was so emotional and so beautiful. And that's when I, you know, got to hang out with the great Wendy Malik and it was, we got to raise a lot of money and, uh, it was, it was just, you just wanted time to stand still. <laughs> just please don't everyone go home. Yeah. I just wanted to, to be in that space. So it was, uh, you know, one of the many full circle moments. And I talk about those in my book. Um, but that was really special. Now, after Golden Girls, just hitting a couple more highlights, you went on to Roseanne, which in that era was a major show. One but it of my wasn't favorite. Golden Girls, Roseanne. There's like a lot of things. There are the several middle. things, but you know, several one of- things happen in the middle. <laughs> you stumble, fall, you get up, you get knocked down again, you get pushed into a wall, you get ignored. Um, yeah. And um, we had passed on the Roseanne show um, from the first season. They just got picked up from the pilot. And um, I was a huge Roseanne fan. Just I saw her on The Tonight Show. And I called our agent the next day and I said, we have to meet with her. Like, we think there's a TV show in, in that character. And he just was like, no, America will never buy her as a lead character. Nobody wants to see a larger person in a lead role. Uh, he's no longer our agent. Um, it was so negative. Uh, but that was TV back then, that you had to look a certain way. You know, and, you know, I found a lot of agents, they want the easy way. They don't want to have to go in there and figure out a way to fight because everybody you know, I was ready to say no to things. So, you know, I think a lot of agents and executives want, what's the easy package? You know, that's why now they talk about, come to us with the whole package and the actors and everything. Yeah, then you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you know, the fun of it is putting it together. And for me, I love the casting process. There's nothing more exciting than to be in a room and have actors come in uh, and read for you. And, you know, I teach a lot of uh, actor audition classes and I say we love to be surprised you know when you write something and you have a visual in mind of who that character is and then somebody else comes in that's completely different like we were doing our lifetime sitcom Rita Rocks and it's about a mom that starts a garage band and in the band was uh, her daughter's cute boyfriend who we wrote as this blonde kind of doofus drummer and in walks this little dark haired Jewish guy Ravi Volman who played Phil of the Future and I'm looking at the casting people why are you wasting my time like that's not what do you did you read what we wrote Ravi starts talking he's a real drummer and he was so charismatic there was no way I could see anybody else in that part after he came in and it just goes to show you you just uh, as an actor just be yourself Bring yourself into the room. And I always say, we can't hire you unless we see you. So don't, you know, try to be somebody else or what's possibly written in the description. If you're in the audition room, it's because we want to see you and what you can bring to it. Um, so that's always fun to be surprised. You know, back in that era, Roseanne and that show where I come from, they looked more like anybody else that I was around in my daily life than anybody else on television. I think it was the beginning of TV presenting real people. Mm-hmm. 
there was some of it during the Norman Lear days. Um, and then it just went into this whole, you know, you had to look like Suzanne Summers, or there was all those, you know, really fit, thin, gorgeous, blonde people. And I didn't look like that. I, you know, that's why I, you know, when I came to Hollywood, I just felt so ugly. It's it's funny now everybody's posting their pictures of when they're 21, which I just did. And everyone's like, oh, you were so cute. It's like, I wish I felt half cute <laughs> back then. I just <laughs> felt I was so hideous. And, you know, that affects how you walk around in the, in the world. Um, so if you're young, love it. And uh, whatever age you are, it, you know, that's something, you know, still grappling with of appreciating where you are when you're there. And I've been trying to find it. pictures of me at 21 and I can't yeah, find any. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, I not on, we didn't have these little magic devices, no, this did. phone at that time. And I, no, I actually have many albums of photos. I love taking photos and I'm glad I took so many of them because I put them in the book, but I did end up writing a play about that called have a good one. <laughs> and it's about four young people that work at an Abercrombie type store in 1999 in the Midwest mall. And it really delves into what is beauty and who gets to decide what beauty is. And um, really there's beauty in all people. And I think Roseanne started to bring out just regular people. And then even further, when shows like the office came up, you know, it really opened doors as far as just regular people can be the stars of shows. And I think that's refreshing. And obviously more doors need to be broken down so we can get as much uh, diversity to, you know, that the television and film world looks like the real world, which it often does not um, because the gatekeepers, you know, again, are nervous and um, because they haven't seen it, they don't, uh, are kind of scared to, put it out into the world. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. You mentioned earlier... And one more career highlight. Listeners, I promise we're going to get to books here in a minute. <laughs> but going back to the title of your book, From Golden to Gilmore, one of my other favorite shows, you were on Gilmore Girls, which yeah. I could imagine. I mean, the dialogue in that show was so rapid fire. I imagine that might have been a tough one to step into. Uh, yes, because it was very different. Although Amy Sherman Palladino had worked many years on sitcoms. So that that style of writing and performance was very different. If you notice, each scene has arcs and usually ends with a kind of what we call a button or a, a joke at the end of it. That's not normal for our shows. It's, in half hours, it's always done. So I think that it just has a different vibe to it. Um, 
But the dialogue was read so fast because she saw it kind of like as one of those madcap 40s movies. So a normal uh, hour script would be, you know, like a minute per page. So it'd be 60 pages. And we had up to 80 to 90 pages on Gilmore Girls. So it's a lot more writing. My, it was my... fun just to let your mind go. And, you know, some of those Lorelei monologues could just be oh my God. just following where her mind went. <laughs> My the Golden Girls book I did was the pop culture references. People have said I should do it for Gilmore Girls, but I mean, it would be a thousand pages long. Yes, but I love <laughs> that Amy did that. Uh, before her, you kind of wrote to the lowest common denominator. Uh-huh. So we'd always get notes from networks or studios saying, well, no one will know that reference. And she was like, who cares? Let them yeah. look it up, you know? And I think that's something, especially your listeners will appreciate it. it it um, it looked up to you know readers and writers, and if you didn't know something, why not learn? <laughs> you know who is Paul Anka? Well, look it up. You know, have your mind expanded rather than just you know sit on the couch and eat. Um, and also back then, you know, you saw a TV show once, maybe in reruns or syndication. You know, we hadn't planned on these series being dissected and talked about, and uh, which I think is exciting. It's fun. <laughs> now, I want to let's move into books and bookstores. Okay. Um, growing up, I mean, do you? What are some of your early earliest memories about reading and about bookshops? Did you have some favorites back in the day? Uh, everyone's going to hate me, but. Uh, I didn't like reading and I didn't read. I mean, I watched television and uh, I was obsessed with TV and movies. Um, I was also intimidated about writing because I always thought in school, you had to be very flowery and the more words you use, the better grades you got. And I was just a very like cut to the chase person, not realizing years later, that that kind of writing style was perfect for television because you had 23 minutes to get to the point. Um, So I never thought I could be a writer. And then I met my writing partner, Jim Berg at NYU, and he was studying journalism. So he kind of brought that talent to our partnership. And then I brought the acting and motivation and emotions from acting and theater. And then we kind of learned from each other. And then I was like, oh, books, and you can read. And then it opened just a whole new world to me. And he really opened up the world of spiritual books first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a time like reading Shirley MacLaine's books. And I became obsessed with her. And then opened up to Louise Hay um, and then Marianne Williamson's books. And she had just started speaking publicly in LA and she would hold these free lectures. And if you were cool in Hollywood, you went to those. And so a big group of mine, we would go and then we would all have dinner and drink wine and, you know, talk about all the things she said. And so when I moved from New York to LA, I kind of thought, you know, you had to be bitter and sarcastic to be funny. And then from reading all these books, it was like, no, you can still have that biting sense of humor of a B. Arthur, but still be loving and caring about others. 
And uh, that was eye-opening. And I didn't have to judge everybody. That people come from so many walks of life and everybody has different experiences and celebrate them instead of laughing or making fun or scoffing or why would you do that? Like really taking the time to understand them. And that gave me my perspective of writing as far as putting myself in people's shoes and seeing how they feel. And that's what books do. I mean, you're literally stepping into, you know, it all goes back to the Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, you know, putting on those shoes, I think. Um, It's it's very clear. Uh, So, you know, that's just opened up my mind to reading. It's also hard for me to read books because, um, I mean, growing up, I remember my grandmother had the Exorcist book. And I, and I said, to, oh, I want it. And she goes, oh, your mother won't, won't allow that. I'm well, just slip it to me. <laughs> and she had a big heart, you know, and uh, I read it. I don't know what. I just like, I think it was because it was so in pop culture. Mm-hmm. I devoured it. And I just remember the smell of the pages. And um, then, of course, after I read it, the movie came out. And it's like, oh, you can't see that. People are going crazy from it. And I said, I've read the book. I can see the movie. (laughs) That allowed my parents to take me to see The Exorcist. Um, And there were different books over the years that really, uh, Good Times, Bad Times uh, was one that really stuck with me. Um, But because I read so many scripts, it's hard to pick up a book and want to see black letters on white pages. (laughs) So I think that's why I go towards hearing music or watching a movie or something visual that it's a little different. Uh, I do find I still keep all these spiritual books around. Um, and sometimes it's just, I'll keep it you know, by bedside or something. And then I'll pick it up, just something will call me and say, pick up that book. And it's almost like you're meant to read that passage. Um, like Eckhart Tolle, you know, I liked his books are really great. What are some books you're kind of answering this question already? Probably if you, if you opened your own bookstore, what are some books you would absolutely insist on stocking? Um, I guess the spiritual books, (laughs) um, and hopefully people will be open to those kind of books and not just kind of poo-poo or roll their eyes. Oh, you know, what's that? You know, it's all like la, la, la. Um, but really, so many of those books are about you create your own reality. And I, I had never really, that concept was really important to me. And uh, especially in industry, like I said, that you get a lot of no's. Like the idea that, I self-generate. I'm sure people that if you follow me on social media, you'll see I self-generate most of my work. So it's just that idea like you can do it. <laughs> uh, just figure out a way um, and don't let, you know, it's like if you're in a maze, don't let, if you hit a wall, figure out left, right, figure a way around it. Um, so I'd have to have those. I think having uh, probably biographies would be really cool. Uh, finding out you know, what happens to real people's lives. Um, you know, there's all the old Hollywood stories. I feel like I wish I'd been in Hollywood in the 40s. Uh, I think that would have been a really exciting time or to have been involved, like the Busby Berkeley was kind of reinventing how you film musicals and 
um, that would have been cool. The whole Gene Kelly and Judy Garland, like that would seem so exciting time to, to be there. So I think those kind of books, I think history books, I think, you know, cause I've been involved with, um, directing a production of the diary of Anne Frank. So unfortunately I learned, uh, when we started the production in 2018, that the story and the diary are no longer require reading in California high school. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So that's why bringing this play to high school students has been so important to me. And now teachers have incorporated the play and reading of it in their classes and even creating curriculum where the kids would write diary entries. Um, so I think we can learn so much from history by you know, reading books. At my shop just yesterday evening, this family came in and one of the kids looked, I don't know, maybe eight or nine. And the older kid was saying to her, is this the girl you're learning about in school? And she was holding a copy of the diary of Anne Frank and the little girl bought it. I was, I was kind of excited to see. I remember reading it, but I remember being a little bit older, but this, this girl looked quite young. Yeah. 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 And every time I go back to it, I'm just, I'm just so shocked that this girl was so eloquent mm-hmm. at such a young age and going through everything that she was going through to be able to write that and using that as her platform. And, um, you know, interestingly, I have a lot of my journal entries in my book um, because a dance teacher at NYU uh, asked us to start keeping journals, and that's what kind of got me into the practice of it. So, you know, books like that, where you can hear what people were going through at a specific time, I think. You know, you mentioned when you were doing the reading of the Golden Girls episode with the Hot in Cleveland cast, you said that it was like reading somebody else's writing. Did it feel that way reading your journal entries from however many years back? Not really, because over the years, I love looking back. So okay. I, for some reason, I, I mean, not the old stuff, the old stuff, I would go and go, oh, my God, Stan, like, it, it, I was just so emotional and always in fear. I didn't realize how much fear I had about losing jobs. Mm-hmm. When, like, that was a big part of it. And as other people have commented, how... uh you know, we were in the closet for a lot of the early jobs in our writing career. Like, how do you open yourself up creatively, yet stay so closed on who you are? That kind of marveled me that that we were able to do that, because it doesn't seem like they would go together. But I think when you're raised um, where being gay is bad, you end up hiding it and having to find ways to be creative through all that. Um, so that hiding it was not that, it was just part of what you had to do to survive. Now, back to bookshops. Now that the book is out in the world, I mean, what what role do you see bookstores playing in in promoting the book? Are you going to do some touring? I mean, I always thought the glamorous thing, they'll send me out, you know, on a train or plane and I get to go to all these bookstores. Uh-huh. They don't seem to be doing that as much anymore. I would like to because I love meeting people in person. So I would love to do as many 
bookstore events as I can. Uh, I'm doing a couple library things through Zoom. Um, I'm very excited to go come to your bookstore. Uh, I am doing two big book signings. Uh, uh, March 26th, Book Soup uh, in Los Angeles. I'm doing a Q&A with a close friend of mine, and you'll, I'll be announcing who that is. Um, uh, so that's kind of a big deal. You know, I've always heard other people in driving down Sunset Boulevard seeing all these book signings, and, oh, my God, Joan Collins is doing one March 1st. <laughs> Uh, I'll be following her once again, and she's in my book. Um, and then really exciting, on uh, April 16th, I'm doing a big uh, book signing and plays, signing all my plays at the Drama Bookshop in New York City. And that that I'm like falling on the floor because as a, a young theater nerd going to that, to me, that was a bookshop, you know, mm-hmm. of plays and uh, and theater history and picture books of, of every theater season. There was a thing called theater world where they put out, you know, pictures of all the different shows. And I would buy those books and just like stare at them and look at the casts. And it was just fascinating to me. Um, so the fact that I will have four plays and a book in that store, it's like, somebody else it's happening to somebody else seeing your so book on a bookstore shelf is a feeling that doesn't it hasn't gotten old for me yet i should say yeah. speaking yeah, for myself there's some great and, bookshops uh, there around la like last bookstore have you ever been there yes and it's a the, um, it's a cool shop what's the one on hillhurst um it's an older bookshop that's a good one um but uh, I have Marissa Jared Winoker, who is a Tony Award winner from Hairspray, and she'll be my uh, moderator Q&A at the Drama Bookshop on the 16th in April. So that's really very cool. There's tons in New York. Start reaching out to them. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I had okay. to do, too. Is, I'm a, I, was, I went on a run in Palm Springs, and I passed by a bookshop. And I go in, and I said, would you carry my book? He said, yes. I came back later. I have little bookmarks. And he went online and said, oh, this is real. He didn't believe me at first. <laughs> he goes, I'm ordering it Monday. I said, well, I'll come back in and I'll, I'll sign him up. And um, yeah. I so can speak was, from know, experience that if, if the Golden Girl is involved, that's a pretty, pretty guaranteed in. <laughs> well, that's what he said. He said, anything Golden Girl sells really, yeah. really well here. So uh, I think I had him at that. But when I went, came in, I was in my running outfit and my little headphones and sweating and probably smelled horribly. And he's like, who is this person coming in here? <laughs> and then I came back in looking glamorous in my glasses. And uh, he was like, oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm reaching out to as many bookstores if anybody's listening and wants to do a live. I have a lot book. of listeners who are booksellers, folks. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, I, I really want to get into different communities and... Uh, because I travel a lot with my work, if I happen to be working in that area, then I, you know, would love to make an event out of it. Like with you, um, you know, I'm coming in for um, the Midwest premiere of my play Silver Foxes in uh, Dublin, Ohio, which is uh, near Columbus. So I'm going to make a little jaunt over to you and and we're going to have a fun event. Will that be your first time in West Virginia? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'll have so to show kind, you what it's be all kind about. to me. Yes. <laughs> be nice to me. Um, 
gosh, you talked about your plays and everything. I mean, what do you, other than the book, what do you have coming ahead in 2024? Oh my God. Well, I'm directing this play. It closes on February 18th. I drive back to LA that night. The very next night, I start a new uh, play that I'm directing. Uh, I did not write this one. A Chicago, a young playwright, Peter Ritt, wrote it called High Maintenance. It's about a high maintenance actress. Um, I think I've dealt with a few of those types. <laughs> um, and um, she gets a job in a regional theater in a production of A Doll's House opposite a robot. So it really is so timely and clever about AI and is this where we're going in the world? Um, so that opens at the Road Theater Company in North Hollywood. Um, I think it's April 12th and we'll play for, I think, six weeks. Um, then from there, I go the next day to New York for the book signing of the Drama Bookshop. Then I come back and I may be directing a big revival of a play. I can't tell you right now, but uh, it could be very exciting. And then I go to uh, Rock Verdi Writers Retreat uh, in France. So last May, I taught three weeks uh, I had four uh, mentees for each section. Um, it's in a 14th century castle in France. So it's a horrible job. I have to drink wine and eat beautiful French food every night. How, how do you do it? I, well, somebody has to. <laughs> I'm so excited to go back. It's, it's a lot of work because when I teach, I just give like a thousand percent. and I get really involved. And uh, uh, it was such a unique experience and there were ghosts and fun things and that uh, people should look it up. They do a bunch of retreats uh, every year. And um, so that was super cool. So I'm going to go do that in July. I mean, you're going to go to you in September. I, oh, I'm directing a play in Virginia. Uh, one of my plays, I think it's in November. So I'm going to go out there. What uh, part of Virginia? Uh, it's on the beach side. Okay. Uh, Onacock, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's near Norfolk. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was out there last year uh, doing my play Right Before I Go, which is a suicide awareness play. And they were so great. And they're like, we have to have you back. And we want to do one of your, another one of your plays. And we want you to direct it. So I'm going to go spend a couple, four to six weeks out there. And yeah, it's going to be cool. I mean, booksellers who are listening to this in each of these areas that we're talking about tell folks how they can get in touch with you yeah so if you go to my new website i just did a, a refresh on it and it looks so cute um so it's zimmermanstand.com and i'll have there's a section there of uh, like all the appearances i'll be making and plays i'm directing in different events um i'm hopefully going to the next gilmore girl fan festival um which is in October in Connecticut. And you can go to thefanfestsociety.com. So if there's anybody in that Connecticut area. Um, and I just started a timeshare in a New York apartment with an old friend of mine. So I'm going to be in New York a lot more. So if people have... There are tons of bookstores in New yeah, York. So New York, yes. New Jersey, Connecticut, in that area, I'll have a place that I can you know, take an easy train ride to uh, set up a, a bookstore event and Q&A. 
Now, I know the Golden Girls fan base is super excited about this book coming out. How are the Gilmore Girls fans? How are they uh, freaking out to this news? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, They've been so great. I have to tell you, through this fan fest society, um, we've created this Gilmore family. And um, a lot of them come and follow me to different events or plays that I do. And it's been a beautiful, beautiful experience. And and those are not like cons where, you know, people are selling things. It really is fan-based. And we just all hang out in this t- kind of take over a little town in Connecticut, like, like a star's hollow. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, have dinners and drinks and, you know, costume contests and panels and things. And um, they've been very special group to me. And uh, I feel so fortunate that's there in my life and vice versa. Stan, I don't want to keep you forever, even though I probably could. There's so many other, my little notes here. Yeah. I haven't even gotten to half of these, but okay. we'll, well save we them for do... September. We'll save them for it's, September. Yes, that's a way to get people to come <laughs> see me in person. Um, and I'm sure you'll have tons of questions. And, you know, again, thank you for taking the time. And I look forward to seeing you again in person and uh, seeing your town and shop and everything. Thank you so much. So the new book is The Girls from Golden to Gilmore, available now. Uh, really quick, you mentioned your website, but tell folks on social media how they can find you. Same thing, Zimmerman Stan. Um, I love Instagram. I love the pictures. I post a lot. And um, it's, you know, follow the ups and downs of my life, my career. Sometimes my passions and viewpoints on certain issues that uh, I feel uh, are important. Well, Stan, it's been great to talk to you, and I'll be seeing you in a few months. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Bookstore Explorer is produced and hosted by me, Matt Browning. Our theme music is Come Right Back to You by Max Hickson. You can follow all my bookstore explorations at bookstoreexplorer.com or on Instagram and Facebook at Bookstore Explorer. And follow us on Twitter at Bookstore EXPLR. Thanks for listening.